0: From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures, and what they've learned from both. Just a quick note before we get started, the F word gets said a couple of times during this conversation, and there are occasional mild references to sexual situations. The romantic comedy. Let's consider it. It is among the most beloved genres of film. If you've ever watched one, I bet you could easily rattle off the classic tropes. The main character, usually a woman, she's likable, probably conventionally attractive, but of course she would never think of herself that way. She might have a job or career ambitions, but what she's really looking for is Mr. Right. And then, one ordinary day, they meet. 45 to 60 minutes of adorable mishaps ensue, leading inevitably to the classic resolution we've all been pulling for. They break up, she spirals into depression, quits her job, follows her ex to a mid-sized city in California to stalk him, all while breaking into self-mocking song and dance. I was working hard at a New York job, making dough, but it made me blue. One day I was crying a lot, and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the crazy This is the theme song from the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a show that in so many ways completely flips the script on what a romantic comedy could or should be. And its co-creator and showrunner, Aline Brash McKenna, is my guest on the show today. And if you're picturing Aline as some genre-busting, radical newcomer to the film and TV industry, think again. Aline is a longtime Hollywood veteran the screenwriter behind the massive hit The Devil Wears Prada and the beloved romantic comedy 27 Dresses. And like any true veteran of Hollywood, Aline only made those hits after many years of laboring in obscurity. And she told me that all she learned and endured during her decades in Hollywood, that is what led to her eventual emergence as a late-career Hollywood revolutionary. She said she might never have made it to Hollywood in the first place if it hadn't been for a single encouraging comment she got when she was just out of college.
1: When I graduated, I did a six-week screenwriting class at NYU. I wrote a sort of a rough draft in that class, and the teacher of that class said, um, I've, I've never said this to anyone in seven years, but you should move to L.A. and become a screenwriter. Wow. And, you know, it's sort of like when you're a writer, you're like a little... Little bird in a cage, or a little gerbil in a cage, and every once in a while you get like a little sip of water, and that sustained me <laughs> for a real. Him saying that sustained me for a really long time.
0: So you arrive at, so you when you arrived in Hollywood, you, you, what was your expectation when you arrived? Like what were your dreams as you got off the bus in Hollywood or whatever? I suppose it was a plane.
1: Yeah, I mean that's you know I wanted I just wanted to work. I really just wanted to get paid to write, uh-huh. um, because it's a very difficult thing. I remember running into a friend of mine and and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm a writer. And he said, you tell people that? That's like, (laughs) you actually declare that? It's so arrogant. And really, unless, until you're making a living as a writer, you don't really feel real. But I got a job, I got an assignment, and Guild Minimum at the time um, was Mm $57,000. And so it was 1991. I was 23 years old. I was rich beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, not. it was like, you know, it was that phase in in your early 20s where nobody has any money. So everybody came over to my house and I would make big bowls of farfalla pasta. And, you know, I I could stop taking money from my dad. You know, I felt very independent. And that was the first time where I felt like, oh, I'm a real, uh," you know, again, that was a little suck on the hummingbird feeder of like, this could be okay. And then the following year, I was kind of living on the fumes of the money from the first year, still making big bowls of farfalla pasta for people, but I didn't have a lot of income.
0: You were living the farfalla life, but not making the farfalla (laughs) bread.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I was uh, farfalla from a success. Um, And my my agent, uh, who, you know, God bless him, got me started, but he started to be too busy for me because I wasn't getting things set up and I wasn't doing very well and it, it would take him a long time to call me back, and then when he did call, it was like, uh, you know, I would fling the furniture out of the way. Like it was beyond any any remote boyfriend. I would just literally plow people over to get to the phone on the like off chance it was him. And then, so I switched agents, and I was with that next agent who was a woman um, who was
0: wonderful to me. Got it. And that and that agent starts getting you work.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's funny is so the so I left that agency, which is a big agency. And then the following year after I signed with this other agency, I did much, much better. I started getting jobs. So I go to a party and I run into one of the partners at the first agency. And I don't know what possessed me, because again, at this point, I'm like 24, 25. And I see him. He's a very distinctive looking gentleman. He has long hair and a beard. And I walk over to him and I say, Hey, you know, I just want to let you know that the year after I, m- I left your agency, I made seven times what I'd made the year before. And, of course, I'd made nothing, so it was like, you know, seven <laughs> times nothing. It's not a lot. But anyway, very proud of myself for my moxie. And as I say that, his his Ferrari pulls up in front of us. And without missing a beat, he turns to me and says, yeah, and it's killing us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wow. Which was pretty
1: great. And I got to say, like, I love that guy. That was like out. Of, that was like something that, you know, that uh, Clark Gable would have said.
0: I know. It, it, it is. It's just like, it's just, It's very much like both of you are showing Moxie and like yeah. giving as good as you take and stuff. It,
1: it was kind of great. So from then on, I was with um, this, this female agent for 17 years, and she was really wonderful, really funny, and really situated me in the business. And these are the years where... You know, I'm working. I'm getting assignments. um, but it's it's just very hard to get things through. And so so
0: so it sounds like so early, so this this first phase of your career, sort of like you're writing and writing and writing and and very few things are actually getting made. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, and and it seems like um, that can go on for a long time,
1: right. And my husband used to say when I complained about this, he used to say, oh, I know, honey, you want to get out of the document production business." Um, because that's what it was. I was, like, creating documents. And, you know, nobody goes into writing movies and TV to to create beautiful documents that sit on your shelf. You want to get things made. So I had kind of reset my goals from I just want to get paid to work to I want to get something made.
0: And so Aline partnered with a guy named Jeff Kahn, a writer who had actually gotten scripts off of the document shelf and onto an actual screen. He was a little older, more established, had worked on a successful sketch comedy show, won an Emmy. And by his side, Aline was able to get into rooms that had been out of reach before. But even when she got into those rooms, she ran into a problem. A problem called the patriarchy.
1: We would go into meetings and people would sort of disregard me. I I actually think a lot of people thought I was his girlfriend. And, you know, he was an ally before anyone was using that word. Like, I remember we went into a meeting together um, to work on a show, like a job interview, basically, and there were two men who were interviewing us, and I was talking to one of them, and Jeff was talking to the other one, and uh, I see him moving his arm, but I don't see what's happening, and I, what had happened was the guy looked at Jeff and made the, like, pumping, you know, the pumping fist and pointed to me.
0: The pumping fist yeah, like, the woohoo i'm pumping the fist in the in the air after a, a sports victory or the the more <laughs> no, <laughs> crude no are
1: you guys are you guys sleeping together in the middle of a Got job it. interview behind my back and uh, instead of playing it off and then <laughs> you know gossiping about it later in the middle of the meeting jeff goes i'm sorry did you just ask me if i'm fucking my writing partner um
0: wow what happened in the room the minute when he said that
1: oh it was awful they didn't laugh. They didn't like apologize. They just were very tense and stressed. It was like, you know, um,
0: what, what what's going through your head at that moment?
1: I shouldn't have worn a skirt. That was the first thing that flashed into my head was like, I shouldn't have
0: worn a skirt. What was the next thing?
1: (laughs) Uh, we're not going to get this job.
0: (laughs) Um, how, how many thoughts flashed through your, through your head before you got to why the fuck did that guy make that gesture in the first place?
1: So here's what's interesting about when someone says something really inappropriate to you, your your lizard brain gets activated and you often think something that's unconnected to, hey, go fuck yourself. Right. You've been humiliated and demeaned and you just want to get out. You just want to get away. Mm-hmm. And for like the next literally 10, 15 years... I didn't wear skirts to meetings because I was like superstitious, more than I thought like someone's going to say something, but I became superstitious about it. And then when I got to be 40 and it was clear that like I could show up in a bathing suit and it would be like, you know, it'd be fine. I went back to wearing whatever I wanted.
0: Looking back, do do you have a thought on like what, how you would have wanted to respond or is, is, I mean, or is there a way to handle it?
1: Uh, You know what? I, I, I actually gravitated towards get to the good people, you know, Writing screenplays does pay well, and I started to realize that what that money was for was for choices and to say, I don't I don't want to work with this person or I don't want to work in this environment, and I have enough money to get through the next six months so I don't have to.
0: Yeah. You don't have to use your talent to help that person. You can help other people.
1: Exactly. There's lots of other fish in the sea, and, and there really were, and I, I found... You know, as I went on, I found um, collaborators that I felt closer and closer to.
0: Coming up, Aline gets a career-making break by writing what, for my money, is one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. That's after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter and co-creator of the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Aline Brosh McKenna. In 2004, Aline landed a new job. Adapting for the screen, the hit novel, The Devil Wears Prada, a Romana clef set in the world of high-fashion magazine publishing. There's a writerly young recent grad, Andy, who dreams of a career in serious journalism, but instead gets a job as the lowly assistant to the legendary Miranda Priestly, the terrifyingly icy editor of, let's just call it a Vogue-like magazine. Aline liked the project. She shared the vision of the director, David Frankel. But in the beginning, at least, she had no idea that this would be the movie that would finally get her, once and for all, out of the document production business.
1: When I was first writing the first draft, I was like, this seems pretty good. Uh-huh. I love this idea. I love this title. This seems good. And then the second that Meryl signed on...
0: Meryl, as in, you know, Meryl Streep, who signed on to play the role of the editor, Miranda Priestley.
1: I felt... A giant wave. I felt like this is ours to fuck up, you know. Right. Um, and so now that was exhilarating, but it was really scary. It was really scary. That that whole process. You're like all of a sudden um,
0: (laughs) this is not gonna. I'm writing for Meryl Streep right now, not the shelf. I'm not. This is. I'm no. I've left document production. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Right. They're making it. They're making it with a director I admire, with actors I admire, and every actor that signed on was like, I mean, you know. And obviously, Anne
0: Hathaway, that is, who plays the role of the young assistant, Andy.
1: But also Stanley Tucci and Emily Blunt. And I mean, they were just, you know, stacking it with this like group of killers, you know, so I could see this big opportunity coming and this big wave coming. And I just was thinking like, am I going to get my surfboard onto this wave? And, as the movie evolved, it was David and I on the phone for hours and hours and hours, like, checking in about what it should be. And then I would, you know, I did draft after draft after draft for him. And and
0: um, there there's a scene, I mean, the, one of the most famous scenes now it, it, from that movie is, is the scene where, um, you know, Anne Hathaway's the, the assistant to Meryl, the Meryl Streep character. And she, you know, she giggles at, like, they're fussing over this sweater.
1: Right. The belt. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the belt. The belt. Right. There's, and, and there's a bunch of fashion editors putting together like this outfit for a photo shoot and they're all trying to decide between these two seemingly identical belts and Andy, the Anne Hathaway character, wanders in wearing this um, sad sort of dumpy blue sweater.
2: Where are the belts for this oh. Why is no one ready? Here. It's a
0: tough call. They're so different. Mm. <laughs>
2: something funny no 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 nothing's you know it's just the both those belts look exactly the same to me you know i'm still learning about this stuff and uh (laughs) this stuff
0: and then just like meryl just like dresses her down and it's like you don't know the slightest thing of what you're talking about and like How'd that come about? <laughs> you wrote that.
1: Yeah. So I, so, well, I had inherited, um, so there were four writers before me and in there, there was about like a three, four line little bit about, um, Andy walks in with a sweater and, um, and, and Miranda's character said a couple lines about it. So I made it a little, I took the sort of germs of what were in there and I wrote a slightly longer speech, like maybe a, a half a page, a little less than half a page a third of a page, let's say. So then uh, Meryl gets the script, and Meryl is like an incredible dramaturg. I mean, she's just so smart about what's good and what could be better, and she's incredible. And I was, it was a Saturday morning, and David called me, and he said, you know, Meryl thinks that we could expand on this speech. And I was like, sure, great. So that, there was a whole morning where I was sitting at the Starbucks by my house, and I would write, more of it and then I would send it to David and he would send it to Meryl and then she would give notes and then he would send it back to me and I would keep writing it and at the end of it it was a page and a half long it was quite long Um, so I just sent it to him and I said it's just way too long but you know use whatever you want you know this is is a raw material if you want me to cut it down call me I'll cut it down and every word of it is in the movie it's incredibly long
2: oh okay I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet, and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean, and you're also blithely unaware of the fact that. In 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores, and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff.
0: And it's just this amazing character moment and it's just sort of like it's just very dramatic. Well,
1: it's also Meryl. I mean, it's it's Meryl. It's Meryl. And the fact that I got to to work on it with her directly, um, you know, and that we had a back and forth about it. You know, that was another thing that I hadn't experienced to that point. And so, you know, when when Devil Wears Prada, we were at the premiere, and it was clear that it had played really well. And I, I had lost track of... I hadn't seen David, actually, the whole night, I think. And then, you know, they showed the movie, and then I went to the party, and I finally saw David Frankel across the party. And he came up to me, and he said... Aline, everyone's talking about the script. The script is so good. And I said, oh, but David, you did such a good job. He goes, no, no, no. The, Aline, the script is so good. I, I, it's hard to describe what that feels like after so many years of the document production business and also so many years of, you know, having th- to have made so many compromises so that you can barely recognize the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, with with Prada, I really, that was the movie we had always talked about making. That movie is not a conventional romantic comedy. It's just sort of in that tone. Um, but it really, that that is about a woman's journey. And the love stories are kind of, they're secondary to her coming of age. And so um, I kind of thought, well, I cracked it. Now it's all going to be that. Now I know how this works. So I'm set. And um, <laughs> And I remember saying to David, like, well, Now we know how to do this. We're just going to continue doing this. And he was, he's maybe seven or eight years older than me, and he was like, oh, honey. Um, He knew right away how anomalous, how much of a lightning in a bottle it was.
0: It was almost as if David Frankel could see into the future and knew that Aline's next big gig was a movie called 27 Dresses. If The Devil Wears Prada had been a chance for Aline to subvert expectations with a non-traditional rom-com, 27 Dresses was sort of the opposite. What was the original idea of that movie, and what, were you, what did you want to do with it?
1: That's a great question. My best friend um, of many years is a real people pleaser, and she had been in 12 weddings, which I think is insane. How are you that—being a bridesmaid is like you've ranked in the top, you know, three to five in someone's life. How are you in the top three to five with 12 people? And it's because she's so nice that Kate is like—she's the house sitter, the dog sitter. She'll pick people up from the airport. And I was really fascinated with that because— I was never taught to be a people pleaser. I didn't even know what that was. Like, if you're not, if you are not married to me or you didn't come out of my body, I'm not picking you up from the airport. There's other ways. You'll you'll figure it out. And that script was written in homage, as an homage to Kate and to all the wonderful people who are just happily trudging to the airport. Right. So I, I kind of wrote that movie to try and get Kate to stop saying yes to everyone for everything because you're making yourself the supporting character in their life. And you need to put yourself first and that's
0: going to require saying no to some stuff. And, and so what, what happens in the end of the original movie that you originally wrote? <laughs> uh,
1: I kept wanting it to be that she just learns to stand up for herself and then she goes on one good date. Um, and I think part of that is because... I'm really super against the idea of soulmates and there's one person for you and Beshert and the puzzle piece. I'm like super against that because I think that's a horrible thing that we peddle to women, uh, that you're going to find this piece that completes you. And so I always think I came at the at that genre piece trying to question it. And I wanted to... Um, kind of spoof a little bit our conventional ideas. I always had that in mind. That's what I wanted. And the producer was like, what's wrong? Like, you're just crazy. What are you doing? That's not this movie at all. And like, he would say, Aline, we're not making the Jill Clayburgh v- version of the movie.
0: I don't even get that. Who's Jill That
1: There's a there's a movie, very like a famous movie where Jill Clayburgh is a single woman in New York and she ends up like walking off on her own and she's like carrying a painting under her arm.
0: Got it. So he's saying, like, that's crazy. Aline, you're crazy. Yeah. Like, this is th- yeah. what we have on our hands here is a traditional romantic comedy, and it yes. has to follow the traditional rules. Right. Okay.
1: And so I just kind of embraced it for what it was. I, embr- I stopped um, kicking my feet against it.
0: Right. I'm going to read you one uh, review. Uh, the filmmakers perfectly followed the well-worn romantic comedy formula, rendering 27 dresses cliched and mostly forgettable. In many ways, you would agree, right? Like, you're, you're, that was the argument that you were making—you were pre-reviewing the movie in these fights that you were having about, like, what we should do with it and how we should subvert the—whatever, the, 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 yeah. the norms of the romantic comedy. Who was right?
1: So the reason he's correct is because what I had pitched him and the world I was in was there. So it was like we had gone to a pizza place, and I was continually saying to him, where are the bagels? And it's like, this is not where the bagels are, Aline. This is the pizza place. Why are you asking for bagels? If you want bagels, go over to the bagel place. And so he's right. That's what that movie wants to be in its own DNA. And it's like, if you want pizza, that is, it's great. It's very satisfying. And it's, you know what I mean? Like you can enjoy like a, just a great, action movie and not think too much about, like, wait, is this reifying ideas of violence? and <laughs> right. I mean, you can, <laughs> but it, it, a lot of people are punching and kicking and shooting people in action movies, and I don't like it, but we're, you're suspending your, um, right? And yes. then you can also enjoy a movie that really takes that apart. So I, I learned to, on that one, now I never, I don't think I have written a movie that's a conventional rom-com since, nor do I think I have written Anything where people ended up together since. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's pretty much correct.
0: Coming up after the break, how Aline Brash McKenna got from 27 dresses to crazy ex-girlfriend. It involved a stern talking to by one of the most successful women in Hollywood. That's coming up. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Aline Brash McKenna. When we left off, Aline had written two big box office hits. She was in high demand in Hollywood, and she wanted to take the next step in her career. Not just be a writer on a project, but be the one in charge, which meant directing. But as she looked around, she realized that most of the people she knew who'd made the leap from writing to directing were men. In fact, Aline only knew of a handful of women who'd done it. And so she decided to get some advice from one of them, and not just anyone.
1: I emailed my agent and said, I want to meet Nora Ephron. Um, And they said, okay, they represented her and they got me a meeting with Nora Ephron, which is like a miracle. And I went to her apartment and I said, you know, um, I'm really thinking about directing I'd really like to do it. But like, you know, how do you make sure that everybody listens to you as a woman and that you feel prepared and this technical stuff and blah, blah, blah. And she said, wow, you're really whining about this. She's like, if you want to do it, you just do it. That's what the guys do. She's like, if you're whining about it and you're not doing it, there's some reason. If you want to do it, just go and do it. I mean, there was no, (laughs) it was all tough love. She gave me no, she didn't concede an inch.
0: And so with Nora Ephron's tough love ringing in her ears, Aline started looking for a project that she could really sink her teeth into. And eventually, she discovered Rachel Bloom. Rachel was a young, aspiring actress who wrote and performed musical sketches and published videos of them on YouTube and on the humor website Cracked.com. Aline could not stop watching these videos.
2: Yeah, it's time to have a girl's night. Let's start singing now.
0: In this one, Rachel is spoofing the kind of girl power pop songs that were popular in the early 2000s. You know, stage lights, wind machines choreographed dancers
2: it's about goddamn time. Baby, ever since you left have been eating a lot of cheese
0: I Aline loved Rachel's sense of humor I'm could immediately so sense that they were kindred spirits and so she reached out to her to set up a meeting
1: I just wanted to meet her to see if i could like help her in some way or produce something for her i don't know what i didn't know what i i didn't really go into that meeting with any expectations but I, I started telling her what I loved about her work, which is Ra- Rachel calls it boner killers. Um, it's like, she's sexy, her boobs are out, but and she's, she's sort of presenting the fantasy, but then she always undercuts it in some way that, like, makes your boner die. So um, Rachel and I, even with, you know, 20-year age difference between us, we both had a sensitivity to kind of the tropes that women are um, delivered, and... The crazy ex-girlfriend idea was like I had carried that idea around in my head for a long time because I think everyone has been one or had one. Mm -hmm. And I love that title. And i had been carrying that around in my head, but I didn't intend to pitch it to her. I just wanted to meet this like intelligent young person. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is how I do that idea. Um, and I pitched it to her. It's this is twenty minutes into meeting. We started working on that idea.
0: So, so you, you guys you, you have a, a meeting of the minds. You love each other. You're like you're yeah. like kid. We're gonna be stars together, or, or some yes. version of that, right? Uh, right. And um, and and what what was that? What was the nugget of the idea that you came up with?
1: The idea of somebody who relocates to another city to stalk someone full time. That was the like first kernel of it.
0: That kernel eventually grew into the premise of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Rebecca Bunch, the main character, is a successful lawyer living in New York City. She's overworked and depressed, unhappy with her love life. One day, she runs into an ex-boyfriend, decides to quit her job, and move to West Covina, California, where he just happens to live. Occasionally, the characters on the show would break out in song and dance to explain their internal dialogue, highlight the irony of events, or parody the tropes of traditional rom-coms. With that idea in place, Rachel and Aline got to work and started writing.
1: We had a really interesting collaboration always because she is so smart and she's so knowledgeable in her area, which is the music area. And that was really great for me because I had developed a lot of expertise. As a long-form story writer, I felt very comfortable and confident in that, but we were inculcating this form that I knew nothing about, and I really, really value her opinion as much, if not more, than anyone I've ever worked with, and um, I'm, like, really picky about what's in a script, and, like, I go over and over it, and, like, I'm really picky about it, and even when I have written with people, I'm always the person at the keys typing, and we were working on the, the pilot, and she sent me the two songs, which are in the pilot, which is the West Covina song.
2: West Covina, California, <gasps> in my song.
1: And the Sexy Getting Ready song.
2: It's the Sexy Getting Ready song, the Sexy Getting Ready song.
1: And she scripts the songs. I think, I don't know if everyone knows that Rachel doesn't just write the lyrics. She also writes this action for the songs. Mm -hmm. And I read them. And I did select all. And I just threw them in the script. You know, Rachel had a similar thing to me, which is like she loved musicals. And then she would just sort of ignore the bit where something terribly retrograde happens right. you know um we were spoofing genres that we loved despite you know and it, we had a special creative connection and it was because her work is about deconstructing s- tropes and i was so thirsty to do that and well g- it, yeah. g-
0: give me an example of like what an example of a, a of a of a trope that you sort of wanted to address and and how did you address it
1: the biggest trope that we Undid was just the idea of this, like, goofy rom-com heroine who always has to be likable. I mean, she does awful things, and one of the Rachel's superpowers is that she can make any kind of hideous behavior just a delight. Yes. Just a delight. (laughs) Um, Exactly. And so, very early on in the show, there's a thing where a homeless person asks her for money, and she says, oh, I'm sorry, I only have 20s. I got them from working. And that is something that you just couldn't do when I broke in. You couldn't do a female anti hero uh, in that era in those movies. And so it was something that I was always kind of struggling with, which was to give women the same amount of flaws and, um, you know, blind spots and insecurity and. You know, I, I have often felt like the last um, frontier for women is to get
0: to be an asshole. With Rebecca Bunch's character, Aline finally crossed into that final frontier. Rebecca becomes more and more unhinged as the show progresses, like in one episode where she fakes a break-in at her own apartment just to get out of a tiny lie. And the show goes deep on issues like mental health, toxic relationships, body image, all while maintaining a lighthearted self-awareness. As a romantic comedy on TV, it was groundbreaking and it stayed on the air for four seasons.
1: I had never intended to kind of take my whole career and pivot into making 62 episodes of, the, of a television show. I never intended to give up my feature career for four years. I never planned to do any of those things. It just, that's where, you know, I, I used to say I met a girl and ran off to the circus, and then Rachel and I realized that a couple people thought that meant we were romantically involved. Um. So I, I actually continued saying it, right. but... um. You know that i I met this brilliant young person, and then we found a network that supported us, and it was like a very it was extremely, extremely tiring and difficult. But I will tell you that, you know, I went from being someone who worked five, six hours a day to someone who worked, you know, twelve to fourteen hours a day. And even though I was less I was at homeless, my husband would say, we are so much happier in the house because you are happy and you had gotten to be so much happier. So even though you're not around as much, it's such a pleasure to be around and see how happy you are and how fulfilled you are that it's it's worth it for us. And that was really moving.
0: When I think about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you know, you you held against the story of like 27 Dresses, which was like sort of very poorly reviewed. You didn't connect to the material at all. you were having constant fights about what it was going to be. And then finally you sort of like came around to the end and said, okay, I'm going to, I'll do this, but this isn't the thing that I would do. This isn't my vision, but I'll get on board with your vision. And it got bad reviews and people sort of called it out, but it also did quite well. Yeah. And um, probably, I don't know, a good 20 million people probably saw it all told. Um, And then Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is almost the mirror opposite of that in every way. nobody saw it. Yeah, nobody Nobody saw saw it. it.
1: No, but I can't even express to you the extent to which no one saw it. We were for a couple years there the lowest rated show on network television. Um Yeah, it didn't. It's not com- it's not commercially. It has a cultural impact but not a commercial impact.
0: What do you feel about that? How do you how do you, what do you do with that?
1: Um Rachel and I didn't feel like we just felt like we were doing our thing and making our show and you can't really attach too much to the outcome and like you you just can't In any creative field, you can't control how people are going to react to or receive something. So I'm fine with that. Um, And it was creatively satisfying, and I'm very proud. And it felt great to not be trying to get what I wanted by going around people or through people or by having relationships with people or making quiet suggestions or, you know, sending emails, but by actually saying, no, it's it's going to be like this, and this is how we want it, and this is how Rachel and I want it. And I was the last arbiter of, like, it's ready to ship now. You know, we're done now.
0: The final episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend aired last April. And I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say... It definitely breaks the rules. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hibba Al-Arbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.